Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is uh, Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. And today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. Mark, the 16th chapter, the 15th to the 20th verses. We're taking then Mark's Gospel then to its very end. And the Gospel is, starts out with, Jesus showed himself to the eleven and said to them, Go out to the whole world, proclaim the good news to all creation. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. And these are the signs that will be associated with believers. In my name they will cast out devils. They will have the gift of tongues and they will pick up snakes in their hands and be unharmed. Should they drink deadly poison, they will lay their hands on the sick who will recover. And so the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, where at the right hand of God he took his place, while they, going out, preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word by the signs that accompany it. So this is a peculiar gospel in one way, a gospel that's, of course, controversial, um, because it does deal with um, with things that seem to us very strange, uh, certainly the business of picking up snakes, which have led to our kind of... Um, uh, many years ago, there was a snake-handling church, for instance, in, uh, in, in South High Street in Columbus. And uh, so it was not... It, some people who took, this, who took this literally, therefore went off in, in very peculiar directions. But let's, let's look more closely, then, at exactly what Jesus is doing and exactly what Jesus is saying. Now, this is in Mark's version. This is after the resurrection, when Jesus showed himself, appeared to the eleven, and said to them, and then he gives them the Great Commission. Um, we find that at the end of Matthew's Gospel, too, go out and baptize all nations in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and behold, I am with you always unto the consummation of the world. Here, go out to the whole world, proclaim the good news to all creation. He who believes will be, and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned, and then, and so forth. But Jesus is then took his place while they were going out, preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word by the signs that accompanied it. So we have this story now of the great transition. We've been following all along, particularly, this is, uh, this is the gospel the church uses during one of the three um, gospel um, liturgical lectionary cycles for um, the ascension of the Lord. And, and it's where, of course, where Mark mentions that Jesus is taken up. But then we find this great transition. The Gospels that have been, we've been dealing with, have been the Gospels dealing with Easter, with the resurrection, with the reality of Christ's resurrection, with the fact that uh, of what the empty tomb meant and why the empty tomb was so important, um, all of those things. But now there's a great handing over. Now there's a great transition taking place as the Gospels. As these Gospels come to an end, and the Bible then turns, the New Testament then turns toward the Acts of the Apostles, 
toward the experience of the early apostles after the Lord, after the series of resurrection appearances and so forth have ended, and each in their own way saying that Jesus is taken up to the Father. And yet at the same time, in both Mark and in Matthew, Jesus affirms the fact that he is still with them, even though he is taken up to his place at the right hand of the Father. And, and <clears throat> to do this, and this is an important piece of all this, because St. Augustine reminds us that even when, when Jesus was with the Father, he was also with us, and he was also with the people. Um, and that he was, in fact, much of the manifestation of the Lord um, in the Old Testament, was the Word, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And then um, what we find is that he becomes incarnate. Augustine says to us, now he is very much with us, but he is, not, he is still present to the Father. He is not absent from the Father. And then after this incarnational experience of Jesus, when in fact he is crucified, he rises from the dead, he appears to the disciples, he affirms to them that he is still incarnate, that he is not just pure spirit. And then he returns to the Father. But Matthew and Mark make it very clear to us, he is still with us as well. So one of the things that we have to avoid in our understanding of the role that Jesus plays with his people and in history, in the world, is that the ascension is not the end of the incarnational reality of Jesus Christ in the midst of the world. And this is critical it's critical and it's very difficult in the wider in the wider uh, umbrella of um, of Christian communities. What what we find is that most of those and and this is something that and this is not it, of course it's not absolutely true across the board, but generally it's acceptable that the main scriptural text and foundation for the Reformation communities, for the ecclesial community, Christian communities, is are the letters of St. Paul. And that they basically emphasize the Pauline theology of the risen Christ. And that becomes kind of central when, for instance, um, in when um, back in the day when the Catholics were accused of not knowing Scripture and all this kind of stuff, and not being able to quote it. A lot of that was they were less familiar with the letters of Paul than they were with the Gospels. But the other way around was also true. Many of the other Christian communities were much more familiar with the Pauline corpus than they were with the Gospels. And this becomes one of the great, strangely dividing issues in a way within the greater Christian umbrella because the Catholic Church and the Eastern churches are anchored so deeply in the Gospels because they continue to believe that this incarnate Christ whom we encounter in the Gospels remains with us and is present to us, is present to us in sacrament and present to us in church. And uh, in fact, and I've mentioned this before, St. Francis of Assisi never mentions Jesus Christ um, separate from sacrament or church, and that when he speaks of God in any other context in that he always speaks of the Most High God, his, his reference is always Trinitarian. 
But when, in fact, he specifically speaks of Jesus, he speaks of sacrament and church. And that's kind of what one of the great theological shifts that's taking place on this particular feast day of the Ascension and these particular Gospels that refer to that. And so we ourselves then have to get this clear in our minds. And I think one of the great things that we, uh, where we can see the distinction between this is in, the, is in John's sixth chapter of John when he talks about the bread of life. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in you. And the, the Hebrews, of course, and the Hebrews understand exactly what he's saying and that's why it distresses them so much they uh they 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 really are beginning to grasp that jesus is saying he's going to replace abraham as the ancestral figure within a whole new covenant of people because that's what it means to eat his flesh and drink his blood they get that and they walk away because it angers them, because he's, what he is doing is he is moving behind the, beyond the covenant with Abraham. Now, when that comes down in, in the translation into the Middle Ages and so forth within the Western world, that whole sense is not an intact part of the, of the understanding of the text. It's part of a cultural disparity between the event and 1,500 years later in a different culture, when people are seeing it in a, in a totally different kind of way. And so what happens then is in, that, in the uh, chapter 6 of John's, of John's Gospel, in one of probably the best translation of the New Testament, actually, which is the Oxford Annotated, um, there is a footnote there, and the Oxford Annotated is a group of Protestant scholars who have put that together in, 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 a, in a magnificent way, language-wise and everything. But it's, there's a footnote, and it says, however, since the resurrection, since Jesus is no longer really present among us, we have to understand this as a spiritual meaning, a spiritual understanding. But you see, we don't have to understand it that way. The Jews didn't understand that way. The apostles didn't understand it that way. And Jesus didn't intend it that way. And that's where we get now, that's where we get now into these texts, why they're so important for us. We cannot say Jesus is no longer with us since the ascension. We can't say that and believe in the Roman Catholic Church. What we do say now is it certainly the dynamic has changed and the emphasis is coming from, from the, the historical man, Jesus Christ, in the first century, who is then evangelizing humanity, to go back and then say, um, then say um, that he now shifts and the story of Jesus in the world now becomes the story of the church in the world. And so the church in the world, who, however, Mark's gospel says, the Lord working with them and confirming the word by the signs that accompanied it. And I am with you always until the consummation of the world. That this is a continuation, but the emphasis changes from the person of Jesus as the initiator to Jesus, the one, the enabler of the church. 
the enabler of the sacramental ministry of the church. So that we can now say yes, and we can say with St. Francis, yes, the incarnate Jesus is still present. The incarnate Jesus is still with us. The incarnate Jesus comes to us in sacrament and is present to us in church. And that's exactly what we see in this gospel, his presence to us in the church, as it leads up to and then enters into the story of the Acts of the Apostles. So let's go back and look at this one more time and then see with this understanding that the ascension is not the end of the incarnate presence of Christ in the world, but it is a moment of a great transition of the incarnate presence of Jesus in the world from the man Jesus of Nazareth of history into the Jesus of faith who is also the Jesus of history as he lives and works within and among his people from now until the consummation of the world. So, Jesus showed himself to the eleven and said to them, Go out to the whole world and proclaim the good news to all creation. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Notice, baptized. We have here a sacrament. And in that sacrament, now, we have materiality. For baptism is done with water. And in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And then whoever does not believe will be condemned. We're sorting out now the shaft and the wheat, you know. And, and then he said, these are the signs that will be associated with believers in my name. And they will cast out devils. They will have the gift of tongues. They will pick up snakes in their hands and be unharmed should they drink deadly poison. And will lay their hands on the sick who will recover. Now, these are not the common signs that we have of the presence of Christ among us. But these were things that were the things that the early apostles encountered in the various places that they went and in the, uh, in the proclamation and in the work that they had. We have already seen in the letters of Paul the idea of the gift of tongues. Um, essentially, what that was came on Pentecost Sunday, which we'll see soon, when, in fact, people spoke a language that was universally understood. And uh, what that means, we're not really sure, but we know that they hear it in their own language. There's an interesting thing about this also. Oftentimes, the things that are proclaimed, the things that are said, are not heard, actually, for what is really said. They're heard from what people need to hear. And I, I recall... Um, one time someone asking if they could uh, record a homily or something. And I said, well, you know, yeah, of course you can if you want to, but you'll be disappointed because what you hear in re-listening to it is not what you heard when it was being proclaimed because the homily is a liturgical part of the Mass. It is a liturgical act, and the Holy Spirit moves within that, and the limitations of the preacher oftentimes are overcome by the Spirit working in the hearts and the souls of the listener. And the listener is able to hear maybe what is not even being said, but what is being said triggers something inside of themselves that they need to hear, and the Spirit working among them and within them will help them then to grasp and to understand these things. This is, in a way, a, a, a variation on the theme of speaking in tongues because the model, the, the primary model of that is, of course, the apostles preaching at Pentecost when they are Galileans and yet everyone is hearing them and we have that very challenging reading 
um, of naming all the, the Mesopotamians, the Parthians, the Pisidians, and all these kind of people are hearing it in their own language, that this is the miracle of the word of God that, that Mark is talking about. The miracle of the word of God that in its proclamation, it is received with comprehension through the power of the Holy Spirit in the presence of the Lord among us and in the word. The picking up the snakes in their hands. We know that this is a biblical theme. Um, you know, what is one of the signs of the messianic age? One of the signs of the messianic age in Isaiah is the child will put his hand in the adder's lair and uh, will be unharmed, that he will, he, will, he will touch the snakes and the snakes will not harm him. Um, just as the snake was lifted up in the desert, and once, and and once the bronze snake was made, then the snakes on the ground could no longer harm. Snakes were a sign of the evil one, and that comes to us, of course, from Genesis. In here, you will deal with the evil one, and you will be unharmed by that. You will speak in such a way even in your own in, in, um, incompetence or even in your own limitations. And, and one of the miracles will be people will hear something that maybe you, that they needed to hear, whether that's what you said or not, and w- but that's what your words triggered in them. And then they say you will cast out demons, and that's what all of this is. The handling of the snakes, the drinking deadly poison, and so forth, which was something that some of the magicians would do, um, and to prove to people, of course, that they were, how they did it, who knows. But the fact of the matter is, if a disciple was forced to do it, he, they, he says, you, 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 won't, you, you won't be killed by it. And, uh, and then also the miracles of healing are also there. And we see those miracles of healing, actually, if we really think about it, probably most of us have seen miracles of healing. Unexplicable cures after people pray, deeply pray, for the, uh, for the healing of a person. We have seen healings in the anointings of the sick. We have seen healings, for instance, at the shrine of Our Lady of Consolation in Cary, um, the, the shrine, for instance, of Saint Anne de Beaupre in Quebec, uh, we see, and, and Lourdes, of course. Um, we see pl- places where people have left crutches and braces and all of those kinds of things. We've seen all those things. And even in our own personal lives, we have witnessed the fact that someone has been miraculously cured. Again, you know, this is something that was not uncommon um, and, at the shrine in Kerry. So all of this, what all of this is really saying is the same thing. You will confront the evil one. And uh, you will confront the evil one in name, in place, in person. You will confront the, the evil one in the burden of sinfulness in the world. And therefore, for the, for the biblical world, that meant illness and sickness as well. And because I am working with you and in you sacramentally and with the church you will be able to overcome these things. So that's kind of why it's important for us not to write Jesus off as a presence after the ascension. And then, then and so the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, um, 
after he was taken up into heaven, there at the right hand of God, he took his place while they, going out, preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word by the signs that accompany it. That's exactly what we've been talking about. There are signs to accompany the word. And I think, you know, that there are certainly specific miracles, and uh, we're aware of those. They, they are, some of them are formally attested to, and others just something that that's the way it happened. Um, and, and people know that. They know that someone they know, someone they cared for, had been cured of something through intercessory prayer, through, through, the, through the sacrament of the anointing, all of those things. We, we've seen that. We know that takes place. We know that has transpired. Um, and that's the confirmation. That's the incarnate presence of Jesus working with the church and among the church. That's not Jesus. That's not the Spirit of God sitting around in heaven at the right hand of the Father. That's the incarnate Jesus with us, working with us, moving with us, um, walking with us, living with us. One of the greatest miracles, very honestly, I think, of the presence of the Lord among us is the, is the capacity of the Catholic Church to survive. After everything, and even in our modern age, especially in our modern age, when there is all sorts of apostasy, all sorts of defection, all sorts of scandal, all sorts of, in this world of constant, instant, and, and, and omnipresent communication, when we know every flaw, every fault of everybody, and yet, despite the fact that the church is one of the targets of this expose of modernity into the world, she survives. She survives, people believe. Um, maybe, not in a, maybe not as culturally as they used to, and maybe not in the numbers they used to when it was a cultural phenomenon, but still, they survive. And they survive everywhere in the world. Despite all the business in China, there's still a very strong, faithful church in China. Um, there's, there's still a strong and faithful church in Nigeria where the persecutions are terrible. Um, it's, it's faltering in the Middle East, but that's because they're being forced to leave. However, there is a Christian core in the Holy Land still diminished certainly by by all of by all of the non-christian forces all of the non-christian forces that exist in the middle east and all of the violence and all of the war and all of that kind of thing there is still some modicum of christianity i think that uh, one thing that was interesting you know one thing when we think well the church can't die well we know in fact that there are places where that can happen and that certainly was the case of north africa in the 7th century, when the armies of the prophet marched across North Africa, I was reading somewhere where they said they destroyed perhaps as many as 20,000 churches through North Africa, which was totally Catholic um, before the 7th century. And, and so exterminated. And yet, and yet, the church is now just um, canonizing um, St. Charles de Foucault, who went into the deserts of, the no of Northern Africa and... Uh, and while his movement did not grow or take root when he was alive, it did after he was dead. And that we have these, these, some of the great testimonies to the disciples of Charles de Foucault 
um, in the deserts of northern Africa. We also find, and I don't remember the call of the movie, recall the name of the movie, but it was the Trappist Monastery in in, um, in uh, Tunisia, I think Tunisia or Algiers, I'm not sure which. And it was a it was a very powerful film, a very important film. Um, and eventually, all the monks were martyred. Um, but but basically, that means that Christianity. There are sparks of Christian life even in northern Africa where people will say, well, it was absolutely destroyed. We had the whole Middle Ages, for instance, the, the religious community of the Most Holy Order of the Trinity, the Order of the Most Holy Trinity, who exchanged themselves for, for Christian slaves in, in North Africa, and they themselves took on, took on the work of the slaves and the life of the slaves and so forth. There has always been this strange back and forth between Christianity and, uh, and the northern part of the African continent. Um, certainly St. Francis in the 13th century went to Egypt to meet the, the, uh, the, the Caliph al-Kamil and, and, uh, and established kind of a rapport between Christianity and Islam to where even to this day one of the great privileges of Francis' disciples are that the Franciscans are the main Catholic presence, clerical Catholic presence in, in the Middle East. So yeah, so we can't we can't be narrow. We can't be small about all these things. We have to be we have to be very clear that now what has happened as the feast of the ascension comes and we approach and we turn toward these gospels is that a huge transition is being made where Jesus forms the church, personally leads that church leads it into the cross, into the resurrection, then he joins it in another way, in an incarnational way, as he begins then to experience accomplishing the mission. Remember what Jesus says to the disciples in John 20, as the Father has sent me, I send you. That's what this gospel is all about. As the Father sent Jesus into the world to cast out demons, to speak in tongues, to handle the, the, the evils of the world and to heal the sick. As Jesus was sent to do that, incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth, he now, as he says in John's Gospel, now I send you and now you do my mission. I am with you, but I am with you differently than I was with you when I was forming you. Now is kind of... The Feast of the Ascension is kind of the, the, uh, the age of maturity where the disciples take on the mission that Jesus gave them to do what Jesus did, not without him, not with him absent, but with him in their midst, but now in a different way so that the burden rests on them to do what the Lord has asked them to do and to bring salvation to all the peoples of the earth. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Then he